Welcome to season three of This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley, a podcast about the Bay Area, technology, and culture. I'm your host, Sunil Rajaraman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Yasha Kekis-Wolf. This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley is brought to you by The Bold Italic. How much research did you do today before today's interview? You know, like a lot or enough. I think I screwed up a little bit, didn't I? Mm, well, I was friendly. We'll let our listeners decide. But uh, we are happy to welcome uh, City Attorney Dennis Herrera to today's episode. You know, I didn't realize the uniqueness of the city attorney that we have here. Dennis, for sure, but just the function of the city attorney in San Francisco. He's doing a lot of very, very important work. He's an elected official and very rare opportunity to interview him. This is a really cool conversation, and for anybody that is interested in Bay Area politics, this is a must-listen. We hope you enjoy today's show. I think that would be unreasonable for me to come in here and then lay out the guidelines for you. Well, uh, we appreciate that, and I appreciate you being here today. Thank you for spending some time with us. very happy to be here. Um, Are you a San Francisco native? I am not. I'm originally from uh, New York. I grew up in Queens until I was about six or seven, and then I moved to a town about 40 minutes outside Manhattan. By the name of Glen Cove, Long Island, and that's where uh, that's where I grew up. Glen Cove, Long Island. You were like, "Hey, I'm going to move to San Francisco." No, not <laughs> at all. I had never been to California until I came here for a summer job in 1987, and I was in in, in law school in Washington D.C. And I opened up the Washington Post, and there was an article on striped bass fishing out on Seal Rocks, and I said, "You know what? California would be a cool place to go for the summer." So I flew out here. <laughs> I know. A, I think I know win- where this is going. <laughs> winter of '86 for a summer job, and I loved it. Then the firm gave me an offer. I said, "All right, I'll do that for a couple of years, and then I'll go back to uh, New York." Now it's you know 30, 31 years later. Uh, I thought you were going to go the like I showed up in the summer in San Francisco, and it was miserable and cold, but I stayed here anyways. Well, I will tell you there is some truth to that. Like my mom is a, a born and bred New Yorker, and when she came and visited me that first summer. She uh, said, "Oh yeah." I said, "Mom, it's cold here in the in the in the in the, in the summertime." She's like, "Oh yeah, 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 sure." Of course, she didn't think I knew what I was talking about. And she shows shows up in August, and it was a real foggy <laughs> night, right? She had so she got the sweatshirt, and we're walking around the next day, and and it was a foggy day. And she had one of the best lines I think I've ever ever heard. It was kind of making fun of San Francisco. She looks looks around. We're walking on Russian Hill, and she goes. I don't know what you see in this damn place. This is Queens with hills and bay windows. <laughs> so she's a never good, been a huge a fan. She's never been a huge fan, but I love it. So you're a convert, though. You, Absolutely. Yeah. And where uh, do you live now? I live in Dogpatch. Oh, nice. I bought there in 1993. I live right up the street from the Hells Angels. They're my neighbor. Ah. And uh, I've seen tremendous change, and people tell me I, uh, I was visionary. I said, no, I was poor. So uh, that's what I could afford at the time, and I love Lennon Dog. Have Dash. you seen the show uh, Sons of Anarchy? FX? I have not. Oh, you got to check it out. I have not. About a, about a biker gang in Northern California. Good one. I highly recommend I it. I got to check it out. Um, so so now you're, I mean, you're an elected official. You're a big man in this town. Well, I'm, I'm an elected official. We'll leave it at that. Uh, <laughs> how do you, how did you, tell tell us about your journey there. What, uh, you know, what, what prompted you to? Yeah, I mean, I, I came out here, um, and by profession, I'm a maritime lawyer. I'm a shipping lawyer. But I always had an interest in politics and government. And when I came out here, I really didn't know anybody. And um, 
uh, it was really at the height of the, the, the uh, political club movement in the late 80s. And I got involved in local political clubs and democratic politics because I cared about it, but um, also because it gave me a social network. I got to meet people. And then um, I got more, I got involved, got, got involved with the California Democratic Party. And then when Bill Clinton decided to run for office, I supported him for president. I went back and served for two, two and a half years as chief of staff, acting as chief of staff of the Maritime Administration in Washington, D.C. But I used to come home every six weeks. Then I came back, went back to my law firm, and knew I, you know, uh, I was going to stay involved in some way. And um, I decided, you know, if I ever run for office, because um, people had approached me, I said, I want to do run for an office that I know I can make a contribution in and not just to be an elected official. So I had been approached to run for Board of Supervisors, and I think that really didn't interest me. But when my predecessor um, decided not to run, I said, there you go. That's the one job that um, I know um, I would enjoy and I can make a real uh, difference in it. And so I had to run for city attorney in 2001, and in an upset, uh, I won. So I've been there 17 years. And, and for those of our listeners who aren't as well-educated about all of the different functions of local government, like what's your responsibility? Like what do you own? Sure. Um, the easiest way to think about it is um, I am uh, the attorney general of, uh, of uh, the city and county of San Francisco. The only thing I don't do is prosecute criminal matters, but I, I'm the general counsel to over 100 city departments, agencies, and commissions. We draft all the legislation. We do all the labor negotiating. We draft all the contracts. Whenever the city has a claim uh, or is sued, I'm the legal representative. And then um, I have another power that I use quite often for consumer protection, which is I can essentially step into the shoes of the attorney general of the state, one of four city attorneys that can do that, and I sue in the name of the people of the state of California. And we usually use that for unfair business practices cases on consumer protection matters. So I can do that as well. And when I'm doing that, I'm not representing the city, I'm representing the people. people. Mm-hmm. So it's about 190 lawyers in my office and that's what we do. So, you know, one of the things that happened this past week, I've been watching the news on Google and Sundar Pichai you know, test- testifying in front of Congress and y- you hear this often, how would you respond to the assertion that, you know, people who are in elected office, they don't understand tech? What would be your response to that? You know, uh, I, I can make the same argument the other way, that unfortunately there are people in tech that might not understand government. And I think that there is a bridge that needs to um, uh, be built, understanding that um, we need to celebrate technological uh, innovation and the uh, entrepreneurship that our tech community brings. But at the same time, it, it can't be done in such a way that ignores the responsibilities that elected officials have to look out for a broader community and that also celebrates what we each bring to the table. And that's something that I think that, you know, I'm sort of uniquely positioned to try and build that bridge because when you're a legislator, you know, you, you really can't, you have a constituency that you're going for, right? In my role as city attorney, what is it that I can bring to the table? I can help bridge that gap between what needs to be going on uh, uh, in the community, in, in the business community, and what it is my client, the, uh, the other elected officials or government are trying to accomplish. And sometimes that that is done, unfortunately, in a, a forum of a litigation environment. Um, my hope is that you know uh, we can do that in a way, in a way previous to that, where I can help bridge that gap. So I think that there's a little bit of, uh, there's, there's probably validity on both sides of, of the argument. Well put. 
I think that like the storyline, at least that I feel like I hear most, is that you know, technology companies in San Francisco in particular are taking advantage of tax schemes that have helped them move in here, but they're not contributing back to the city in a meaningful way. And I'm, I'm just kind of curious if that's something that you buy into with the current administration in, in San Francisco. No, I wouldn't say that. I, I Look, I, I, I wouldn't uh, – I, I don't think that that's uh, necessarily true. Um, certainly, there's no doubt that there were um, tax schemes that were uh, put in place to help attract business. That you know, we've done that over the years for a lot of businesses, or a lot of industries. Um, I do think that um, there uh, has been outreach by we're talking specifically about tech community, um, going out to give back to the community and from a philanthropic perspective. Uh, uh, and giving back, whether it be money or time. And I think that needs to um, be celebrated and acknowledged. What I do think is uh, true on the other side of the equation, though, that uh, there are some folks, and I'm not saying all, that you know you got to get away from the arrogance of thinking we always know best. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that you know uh, people in the in the tech uh, world need to be sensitive to the fact that there may be people in government or in the community that have a perception that uh, tech folks are always going to sit there and say, well, we know best, we know better than you, and it's an anti In other words, in other words like we you, can kind of be assholes. <laughs> no, no. no, it's, it's, no, and it's right. legit. It's a, and look, it, unfortunately, people are speaking different languages, right? Yeah. So how do we bridge that and understand that, you know, we need to celebrate the innovation and ingenuity, and you know, but we have to look out for the broader construct. So that's the, I think... When you think of the fact that historically San Francisco had always been a uh, service place for Silicon Valley, but now it is of Silicon Valley, right. people are getting used to speaking the same language, and they need to. And I think that people are feeling through. But I think the tech community has stepped up philanthropically, politically, and other ways to sort of help deal with the problems that we have here. In San I'm just going to go for it. Which which tech company or tech companies do you think are most destructive to San Francisco? You know, I'm going to sit here and tell you that I don't think that there is a tech. Uh, a community company that is the most destructive. I have my, I have my own opinions about who I think actually is probably more concerning, and it's not a tech company. It is for me. I look at uh, PG&E and the battles that we've had with them over the years, and what they've done to shareholders. How they haven't um, uh, necessarily, in my opinion, invested in infrastructure, uh, with unfortunately tragic consequences. And to me. Um, and, 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 and what we're dealing with, I would say that for me, they're much more of a concern. By the same token, I would say that it is, it is no secret that um, I've, had, I've subpoenaed records from a couple of uh, – from Uber and, uh, and uh, Lyft to, uh, on issues relating to driver safety and whatnot to make sure that they're conducting their business in a very, very um, – uh, positive way that is not contributing uh, to creating a public nuisance out on the streets. And that's not necessarily an indictment of them as companies. It's just like I have to make sure that the benefits that they are bringing out on the streets, which they certainly are, are not doing it in such a way that, you know, we're having, like I'm talking about earlier, that bridge, that we're not having guys that are out on the street that are uh, overworked, that are undertrained, that are not sensitive to handicap needs and the like. So I think in that transportation sphere, we have to really look more about What about Airbnb? You know, Airbnb is interesting because there's an example of um, something that I think you saw a public policy response that has worked positively. And let me tell you what I mean by that. Recall 
there was a bunch of rules that were put in by the San Francisco Board of Supervisors with respect to Airbnb. And essentially, you know, 90-day limitations, and you have to register and have a number before you can be uh, listed on the website. And if you're not, then you could go after the host. Airbnb sued, okay, on that. We won that lawsuit. And what has happened? That has actually been something that has worked well. You have seen a lot of illegal listings come off, um, come off the, um, uh, uh, come off the board, and they, those are now available for um, uh, uh, residents to to rent. And at the same time, they're able to conduct their business, and they have been actually very helpful in helping us continuing to police to make sure that we're going after bad actors. So I actually think that the public policy response to uh, a problem that was identified by folks. Uh, has had a positive uh, response that has resulted in cooperation between the company and the city. Hmm. I'm kind of curious, like the maybe the other side of that coin, uh, the question that Sunil asked is, who's the company that you think sets the archetype for the way that you want to engage, the way that you want to build that bridge? Like, is there a company or yeah. a person or a group yeah, of people? I, I think Salesforce and Mark Benioff, I, I really respect how he has stepped up. Uh, uh, both individually and Salesforce as a company understands. Look, this is his home city. He has a um, a, a respect for the uh, public policy process. He 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 puts his money where his mouth is philanthropically. He wants to uh, engage his workforce in giving back to the community, and uh, he's contributed to education. I, I think that he understands the necessity of playing responsibly in the public policy sphere, and I very much admire him. I mean, as you think about the future, what do you think about? What are the what are the pending problems that you're you're going to have to think about? We're all going to have to think about. It could be self driving cars, AI. I don't know what what are what are things that you're thinking about. I think that um, <laughs> something we really need to think about uh, from a technology perspective and how we manage what's going on in the cities. How we deal with our traffic, and I'm not just talking about uh, driverless cars. I mean, and I don't know the answers, but how to manage traffic flow in the city because, look, we have now probably more than 100,000 people more than we did 10 years ago, probably 125,000. And uh, we don't have a transportation infrastructure to support that. We have buses, but those are buses that are mostly that are out on the street. You, you go to New York, you got subways everywhere. And uh, real transportation networks that can uh, move people quickly and uh, uh, efficiently serve a number of different purposes, obviously. It gets cars off the street, mobility, but it does something else, which I think is really important. And that is, it is the great equalizer. If you go to New York, you see rich folks, you see poor folks, you see all sorts of individuals on uh, uh, public transit on the subways, and it is the great equalizer at building community and people understanding the value of government. It becomes the the, the metaphor for what government is. Mm. And, and and we don't have a sufficient system here. So I think that how we manage that and what we can do is probably the most one of the most important things that we collectively need to focus on. It's I, I have this story in my head that maybe is completely wrong, but part of how I understand our transportation system to be as challenging as it is is that it isn't just about San Francisco. It's about working with the other counties and the other cities, and and there hasn't traditionally been a very good set of relationships there. Is that changing at all? Uh, is that a right story? First that, of all, that, that and, is true, but I, I would say that um, th that that's not the reason that we don't have 
great public transit in, in San Francisco. That's certainly a contributing factor, but it is not the only reason. Mm-hmm. But, and if you think about it, there are transportation challenges that are not just unique to San Francisco. BART going around the Bay Area has the same issues. They have old equipment. They don't have enough capacity. And you, that's that's something that you are seeing Bay Area-wide. And I think that that is – we have two issues, right, that are the big issues for the Bay Area. It's cost of housing and transportation. And these are things – these are the things that we need to be able to focus on. How much of your time do you spend thinking about federal issues as opposed to San Francisco issues? Well, in today's day and age, actually uh, a fair amount. I mean, uh, you know, with the Trump administration in office and uh, demonizing immigrant communities and what they've done going after sanctuary or what they've gone, done uh, going after health care, the environment, actually a lot. We, do, we file um, a fair amount of cases challenging what the uh, Trump, the current administration has done. I mean, most significantly and probably most in a most notable fashion was we were the ones to file um, the first lawsuit uh, against the uh, sanctuary city executive order that he tried to put forth in the first couple of weeks of, administra- of his administration, and we got the nationwide injunction halting its implementation. So we, d- we do a fair amount. So just how destructive is this administration? I'm assuming you, you believe it's destructive, and a lot of people do, especially here. Uh, what what is an anecdote you would have that would that would just illustrate as a sort of maybe outside of things that people read day to day, just how destructive the administration is? Uh, to me, it, it really comes down to just re- threatening the institutions that sort of are the pillars of American democracy. Um, we read about them every day, going after the judici- judiciary, the media. This the, People don't realize how important and destructive what he's doing is. And what I mean by that is people always say, oh, well, we have the checks and balances uh, to to keep him in check. Uh, The the checks and balances are only as strong uh, as institutional bulwarks as the people who lead them. Uh, And they have to have uh, 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 the personal strength to sort of stand up, and and I, what I'm, I, there are a lot of things that people don't really think about, that um, there are, are, are unspoken rules about how you conduct yourself, how you interact with different institutions, whether it be legislative branch of government or the media or the judiciary, that sort of assumes a certain level of good faith that everybody brings to the table, and his utter destruction of that, I think threatens those pillars. And that, to me, that's something that people can't ever lose sight of, that our democracy is very, actually, it's strong, but it's fragile. And it depends on the strength of uh, the individuals at the head of those institutions to make sure that they can work. When you think about um, your kind of current administration, the group of people that you work with here in San Francisco, what's a topic area that you're spending a lot of energy on that you just don't feel like gets airtime or isn't part of the story that you want the people in San Francisco to actually hear about? You know, our office gets involved in so many things. Like I said, we're general counsel over 100 city departments, agencies, commissions. So we're involved in everything. And a huge thing that sort of doesn't get that much uh, attention but is really important, you, it, in some ways it got a little attention today because on the front page of the paper, is water supply. Mm-hmm. And um, what we're doing working to ensure that um, – uh, Hetch Hetchy water continues to flow to, to San Francisco. That's not something that people understand, but right. you know we have a, a huge water infrastructure here in San Francisco that serves not just the city but the Bay Area more generally. Yeah, and we're really involved in that. Yeah, 
Well, I was always fascinated with uh, like Chinatown and, and the story behind Chinatown and the relationship to Mono Lake and Los Angeles. And I, I expect that water and water rights are going to be much more of an issue that we're all aware of over well, the course of the next you, few decades. Well, let me tell you, it's absolutely right. I tell people that are that are coming out of law school now, if you want to be you you want to have a career, be a water lawyer huh. in California. I mean, you understand so many things. You're going to just Climate change impacts it. You understand federal-state relations, mm -hmm. local community relations. You have to understand politics. you got to be a darn good lawyer. Um, you're always going to be valuable. You get involved in virtually everything, and you become an incredibly well-rounded uh, legal professional. What's a case that you're working on right now that could have broad implications on you know the day-to-day -day lives of the residents of San Francisco? Is there something that you're, you think about that, wow, this could really— have a massive effect. Well, I've been pretty lucky. We've had a whole lot of those. I mean, we were the only, my office was the only one to be involved in, in virtually every marriage, uh, uh, marriage equality case in state court and federal court, and we fought that battle, battle for 10 years. Right now, what we're doing on um, sanctuary and immigration more broadly impacts huge uh, number of folks in San Francisco, and not just those in immigrant communities, but in uh, communities more broadly in San Francisco so because it impacts it impacts public safety. To give to give our listeners context, what is it specifically that you're working on in relation to sanctuary cities? Okay, so the executive order that came out that we fought against, that we got a nationwide injunction against, um, ensures that San Francisco sanctuary city policy continues to remain the law. And can you describe this, what yeah. the policy is? And the sanctuary city policy basically um, prohibits those in San Francisco government from um, giving anything with respect to citizenship or immigration status, limits that you can't stop, you, can't, you don't have to uh, uh, cooperate with the feds on anything beyond that, right? So we don't have to let folks know when they're going to be, when people might be, uh, who are on detainers, who are, who are going to be leaving prison. And... It really builds, it has built trust in commu immigrant communities in San Francisco on the issue that we really have to face, and that is what's going on on, on our streets. And if you have a community that doesn't feel like it can talk to law enforcement because it's going to get turned into the feds, you're going to have witnesses that don't come forward, victims of crimes that don't come forward, and that just doesn't impact those communities. It impacts non-immigrant communities as well. So this is something that is vitally important, not just in San Francisco, but across the state of California when we are pretty much a state of, uh, of immigrants. So it has huge impact on what happens in communities throughout uh, California and actually throughout the country. What's your view of the people who are trying to get California to secede? <laughs> I think it's kind of ridiculous. Just, <laughs> I just had maybe to not ask. secession, but the, what about the breakup into five different states? I think yeah, yeah, yeah. Also I th ridiculous. I think it's ridiculous. I mean, look, the last thing in the world we need in this country is more division. <laughs> we need celeb to celebrate coming together. And um, California, California is the fifth largest economy in uh, in the world, and I, I just I can't imagine uh, a, a crazier idea than breaking it up to, into five little Californias. We we went from like zero to a hundred in this interview, right? It's been <laughs> this has been one of the most intense interviews that we've we've really. Had. I, 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 I should, hope that's good. No, 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 no that's no, great. That's great. Let's you know maybe we should light maybe we should lighten it up a little bit. This has been like yeah, very. 
So where do you, where do you where do you eat? Like what, what's your what's your go to restaurant? What's your go to in Dog Patch? Uh, in Dog Patch, I go to uh, Pacino. Yeah, a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pacino a lot, and right across the street, there's a great ice uh, cream. J- Jap- well, first the J- oh. Japanese place, Ina, the corner of Twenty Second Minnesota. You're right, Mister and Mrs. Miscellaneous. Mm-hmm. If they, the guy lives across the street from me, but they try and manage a family. It's not, not open on the best hours. <laughs> and now Magnolia has reopened again in a different um, oh. construct. Wonderful. Uh, you know, but uh, so I love the stuff in uh, my neighborhood. Yeah. And, uh, and but I, I get around town. And there's a lot of places I like. Are you, uh, do you have higher aspirations? Are you going to be mayor someday? Well, I ran for mayor in 2011. I Think, should have known that. Thing, Damn you know, internet research. You've got to do your research. Oh, my God. I mean, I was one of the favorites <laughs> in the race. Uh, and then uh, Gavin won for lieutenant governor, and we had Mayor Lee come in as interim mayor, and that kind of blew things up. But that's politics, right? Politics is not always predictable. So, um, you know, that was a great experience, and it, it, what, that's the only election I've ever lost. Not an easy thing, but you learn a lot about yourself yeah. when you win as well as when you lose. So... Um, How's your relationship wonderful. with Gavin? Good. First name basis? Yeah, sure. I just I was texting with him yesterday, so we have a very good relationship. <laughs> texting or WhatsApp or is Facebook uh, Messenger? Or what? No, it, was <laughs> just a, it was just texting. Oh, yeah. uh, okay, okay. This is, what's your view of uh, Facebook? Well, you know, it's interesting. People, I, I, I admit this, my wife always says, you're a Facebook boyer because I don't post. Very rarely do I post, but, you know, I check up on things. Um, so I think, obviously, it has done tremendous benefit but i don't with any new tech new technology or new thing you know you learn some bad things too i don't like the anonymity it has given to allow people to be as virulent as in their criticisms as others by hiding behind the high mind just writing it instead of having a conversation some of the stuff i see posted that is so angry and hateful i don't think that they, they would do that if they had to sit and have a conversation with yeah. somebody. So I don't like that. Oh, it's so easy to be a social media tough guy, right? Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah, it is totally. And then obviously there's a lot of concerns about privacy issues and and um, uh, 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 being used by uh, trolls and folks that don't have our American democracy at heart to uh, screw with our democracy. Um, we need to get that under control, and and we need to make sure we're protecting people's privacy. So there's a lot of good things, but we got we got to figure some of this other stuff out. Yeah. What do you want our listeners to take away from this from this podcast? Like, what what's something that you know a message that you would just want to convey that you would say, okay, if you take nothing else from this, take this take this one or two sentences from me. Couple things that <laughs> government isn't always. Uh, 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 we've had 40 years in this country of of 45 of people saying that. Uh, Government is always the problem and not part of the solution. I think that has led to, you know, a lot of distrust of government in terms of motive or ability to impact. And um, I think that's totally wrong. Government uh, has just as much of a place to work in partnership with business to better and and with individual communities to better um, uh, society. And we need to work together and utilize all these institutions to do things that are going to bring us together. And that's something that I'm committed to. And, uh, you know, I, I think I've demonstrated, of course, my 17 years in office. I, I, th- I think it's a, an important point. There's another kind of component to that that I think is also meaningful. It's that the kind of the governmental offices are made up of individuals, and those individuals are real human beings, and yeah. they act, they don't they're not perfect all the time, and no. um, they're oftentimes trying to do something because they believe it's the right thing to do. And, and I think today has been cool for us uh, getting to meet you, 
not just thinking about you as a name that we've got to put a check mark next to. Um, we appreciate our time um, that you spent with us today. We do well, have one question know, that we want to close What do you out. think of Yasha's scarf? Yeah. What's, uh, what do you think I about? like it. I like it. I, I wouldn't wear it myself. Well, okay, but I like it. He's always into the scarves. I never understand <laughs> it's, it. Every it's winter. Session, you can wear a scarf. a scarf from like November all the way through until. Well, it's a light scarf. Yeah. It's not yeah. a heavy scarf. See? He's very fashion forward. You know, it's something that we, it's like, he's my fashion idol. I, I would never put on a scarf. Yeah, I but, just wouldn't do it. it wouldn't but go that with... scarf would match your shirt. You got a little yeah. red and white in there. You got. So Neil's good. my height idol. I wish I was as tall as him, <laughs> but I don't wish I dressed like him. I'm teasing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, was... We do. We have one very serious question that we ask to everybody that yeah. comes on the podcast. It's maybe not as serious as it make it out to be. Um, you spend time on social networks. You said Facebook. Maybe you spend time on Twitter. Yeah. Who's a person or an organization that you follow that you think our listeners should? Listen I think to there's well? two. You know, I I I I like Thomas Friedman very much and Paul Krugman from the New York Times. Yeah. And I follow both of them. I've always liked Tom Friedman from his very first book, From Beirut to Jerusalem, because I think he's a very thoughtful writer, and he has a great um, perspective on the international sphere and our place in it. And when you look at the two big issues, for me, what's going on in the world? How is the United States interacting with other countries and economies in an increasingly interdependent world? Okay, he's important. And Paul Krugman is because our 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 our, our problems or our issues, our future is so tied to economics. And I think those two go hand in hand. So I always make sure I follow them. Yeah. One hot take extra question. Um, 2020 election comes up nationally for the president. Who's the challenger? I, I don't know. I will say this. Um, Kamala Harris worked for me for uh, two and a half years. Um, I'm a, a, a huge fan and she's a personal friend. And I I'm so, she's going to make her decision over um, Christmas. I'd encourage her to make uh, uh, the right choice for her and for the country. And throw her hat in the know, ring. You know, throw her hat in the ring. Yeah, when she when she announces, just tell her to come on the podcast and announce, <laughs> announce it on here. I will we'll, do that. We'll be happy to have her. She can make her for <laughs> And she's good on radio. She'll be a lot of fun, I promise you. Okay. This has been awesome today. Thank you so much for spending time out of day with us. No, thank you. Thank you. So uh, Kamala Harris in 2020. I mean, it could be possible, and we're hoping, uh, you know, after today's podcast, that she'll uh, she'll announce on on our uh, on our show. I think uh, Dennis promised that he's going to make that happen. <laughs> well, aside from that promise, I have to say that uh, this was well worth our time. This was an amazing interview. Yeah, I felt like it wasn't just a fun conversation, but I learned a lot, and that's important. It makes me want to work harder as somebody who is in technology to really, you know, learn more about government and just civic responsibility in general. Yeah, I think that's a great point. This was a really fun episode. If you enjoyed the episode as much as we enjoyed making it, please go back to the application you found this podcast on. Rate us five stars. Leave us a comment. It helps the podcast out a ton. Thanks for joining us.